I was having lunch with a couple guys this week, and um, it came up that that we stand when we when we read the word aloud, and and one of the guys who's a pastor is all like, "You really? You do that? Why do you do that?" And uh, I mean, in our culture, standing is a sign of respect, right? So the word of God is proclaimed, and we stand because it's our authority. And then you all sit down and listen to me because I am not your authority. Um, speaking of which, last week I was talking about uh, just this kind of idea that um, Jesus set aside the power of his divine nature when he became a man in many ways. And we see that he's not omniscient, he's not omnipresent, he's, he's limited in this human body for a small period of time. And I, I wondered out loud, we were talking about the apostles, I wondered, did Jesus know that Judas would betray him when he picked him as a disciple? And I thought maybe he didn't. And a lovely, uh, humble, gentle member of our congregation came up to me afterwards and said, actually, in John 6, 64, John writes that very specifically Jesus did know that Judas would betray him. And uh, so I was wrong. And I appreciate that. Uh, the, the person that, that uh, pulled me aside probably doesn't want to be called out. But um, yeah, when, when we stand up here to teach the word... Spencer and myself and any of the other people that teach here, we want to be, we want to study, we want to know what we're talking about, but, but we don't always get it right. And there's this group of people in the book of Acts called the Bereans, who Paul goes to their city and he proclaims the gospel and they believe the gospel, but they check the scriptures first to make sure that what Paul says is right. And it's, exciting to me that we are people that are checking the scriptures, even the scriptures, that the, the things that I say, check it out and make sure it's right, because what do I know half the time, right? So be in your Bibles, have your Bibles open. If you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to be on page 863 in the Pew Bibles this morning. And we're going to be taking a look at this continuation of Jesus' kind of marching orders for his disciples, we talked last week about how he chose 12 and he sent them out on this mission, this temporary mission. They're going to go and do this short-term thing, and then they're going to come back and report on that. And last week, we talked about how they were commissioned. They were given authority to cast out demons and heal people and and do all these amazing things. But today, it kind of turns the corner a little bit. And and it reminded me of... um, there's kind of a, I like movie tropes. Um, there's, there's this kind of thing in, in specifically World War II movies where you've got a bunch of young men, like 18, 19-year-old guys, and they're like going down to the recruitment office and they're super pumped about it and they're gonna go kill Nazis. And then fast forward a little bit into later in the movie and it's dark and rainy and muddy and the packs are heavy and maybe there's been death and it sucks because the horrors of war are terrible and they're much different than the excitement of the new recruits. And, and, I, and I, I feel like there's this kind of shift in tone here in this section. N.T. Wright says it's like going up a roller coaster and you go higher and higher and you see the landscape around you as far as the eye can see. And then you get to the top and you go, oh no, we're gonna die. And it goes straight down. 
And the reality of these verses that we just read and that we're going to go over is that it's really pretty frightening. For those of us that have grown up in the church, maybe we've heard this from Jesus and you, your eyes just kind of glaze over as you hear about these things that are gonna happen to Jesus' people. But if you really take Jesus at his word here, this is pretty scary stuff. And I wanna break this passage up into four sections for those of you that like to take notes. We're gonna, we're gonna ask the question, who, we are, who are we as disciples? And then we're going to ask, what will happen to us as disciples? And then how do we respond to that as disciples? And then finally, what will become as disciples? So the first section is, who are we? Verse 16, look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. We are like sheep among wolves. Sheep are a lot of things, but in Jesus' metaphor, um, sheep are weak and sheep are defenseless. This is the idea of being out among wolves. Wolves are animals that hunt in packs. They hunt large animals. They eat them. I mean, if you have any kind of basis for the way nature works, it's pretty, it's pretty an unfair fight. Um, sheep are totally defenseless. Jesus is saying, I'm sending you out to interact with those people that are willing and able to harm you. And notice he doesn't say like, there's wolves out there, so we got to train up and we got we to, gotta, you know, put on some armor and we got to get good so we can fight the wolves. No, he just says, this is the reality. You are going out as sheep among wolves. You will be at a disadvantage from a human perspective. And this verse flies in the face of, of much of Christian history and even the impulses of our hearts. We don't want to be sheep among wolves. We want to be like bigger wolves among wolves. We want to be strong. We want to be powerful. We want to turn the tables on the wolves, take the power from the wolves. We've done that over and over and over again in church history. We've seen the church gain power and authority over the forces of the world. And it, for some reason, never goes very well. It always corrupts the church. It always makes us compromise our values. It always goes badly for the witness of the gospel. So Jesus seems to have something going for him when he says, this is who you are, sheep among wolves. But then he uses a couple other animal metaphors. He says, I want you to be shrewd as serpents. One of the things that sheep are thought of is, sheep are thought of as being stupid, foolish. So Jesus says, don't be foolish like sheep. A snake uh, ha has the reputation of being cunning. It has the reputation of getting out of the way when there's danger. Uh, I was up at... Um, Larry Ramage's house a couple weeks ago and we were walking his property and we saw this like brown thing on the ground and like, what is that? And oh, it's a snake. It's this little, little brown snake. But it was just totally motionless. I'm like, is it dead? So we went up and we, you know, poked it with a stick because that's what you do. And it kind of, its tail, it kind of went like this. It's like, and Larry, who is much smarter than I, was all like, well, it's like 40 degrees right now. It's, it's, it's cold, it can't move. 
But that's super out of character for a snake. You expect this little snake to just shimmy off into the brush because it knows you're coming. It can see you. It can hear you. It can do whatever it does with its tongue and see the world with its taste buds. And, and it knows danger is coming and it runs away. We're not to be gullible and naive as Christians. So how does the snake stay out of danger? It, it pays attention. It knows what's going on around it, if it's warm enough, anyway. <laughs> we need to be people that know what's going on around us. We need to be students of our culture. It's easy as, as Christians to be afraid of culture, afraid of the corrupting influence of culture, but we need to be aware of what's going on in the world if we're going to be lights in it. I, I spend a lot of time um, reading um, reading articles by a wide variety of people. And, and maybe you don't have a lot of time to do that, but it's super interesting listening to the perspectives of people who maybe grew up in the church and have walked away or who are atheists or who live a lifestyle that's completely foreign to what it means to follow Jesus. And, and they, they write about what their life is like or how they see the world or how they see the church. And beginning to understand what people are like, it helps us to be shrewd. It helps us to understand the world around us. And it ultimately helps us to engage people with the love of Christ. If you have children, I think it's incredibly important to be aware of what's going on. There is a whole generation of high schoolers that are completely divorced from what we would call a Judeo-Christian ethic. Their, their parents didn't, give them Jesus, their grandparents didn't give them Jesus, and now they're 18, 19, 20, and they're going into college, and they're going into the workforce, and they're going to be running our world in the next couple of years, and, and many of them are just completely diametrically opposed to the values of Scripture and to the gospel of Jesus just by default. And if we're going to engage this culture, we have to be aware of what, they, what their assumptions are, what their beliefs are, what their hopes and dreams are. How does the gospel, how is the gospel good news for people that are so far from God that they can't even understand the basic concepts that we take for granted? So he says, be shrewd as serpents, pay attention to stuff. But then he says, be innocent as doves. Innocent could also be translated harmless because snakes Snakes try to run away, but if they can't run away, what do they do? They turn and they bite you. They attack people. They defend themselves. Snakes attack people, but Jesus says Christians don't. Christians aren't like that. See, Jesus balances this serpent metaphor with this idea of being a dove, being innocent, being harmless. And, and we see this over and over in the teaching of Jesus, that we're told not to attack people, not to fight people, not to take over, not to wield power. It makes a lot of sense to me that the gospel would be best served if we destroyed our enemies. If we just took over, you know, got into all of the positions of power, made every other faith illegal, did all of these things to just, that would be really good for the cause of the gospel. But Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. Don't 
use the weapons of the world around you in order to fight them. There's this scene in The Lord of the Rings uh, when uh, Frodo brings the ring of power to the council in the very beginning and all of these heroes are looking at it and Boromir of Gundor says, give Gundor the weapon of the enemy and let us use it against him. And Gandalf says, no, that it's purely evil. You cannot wield it. It will destroy you. And that's what worldly power is like. We, we think like if we would only elect the right people to office, if we would only get the right people in Hollywood or the right people in the music industry or the right people in government, then the gospel will flourish. But Jesus says it's not, that's not how it works. The gospel flourishes when we are at the bottom of society. Shrewd as serpents, but innocent, harmless as doves. I found this story um, that I think illustrates this really well. There's just so much in here. Um, there's, a, there's an organization called the um, Preemptive Love Coalition. They're a Christian nonprofit that does work primarily in majority Muslim countries, Iraq and Pakistan and um, uh, Syria. And they, were, they took a team to bring supplies to an internment camp in Iraq. And this particular camp was just filled with ISIS fighters that had been captured. And this is a story of this man who's a volunteer with this organization named Sadiq. And it, the story goes, Sadiq gave water to a bound prisoner dressed in a yellow jumpsuit who he recognized from an ISIS propaganda video posted online. This man, a tribal sheikh loyal to the Islamic State, had stood and watched as a friend of Sadiq's was brutally executed. You killed my friend, Sadiq said, as he poured water into the man's mouth, but I've come here to feed you. The article goes on to say that Preemptive Love Coalition has been warned, had been warned against the trip by Iraqi leaders and even some of their friends who told them they'd gone too far this time. The, de the detainees deserved to suffer after what they had done. PLC responded, but we believe only light can drive out darkness. Love is the only real answer to hate. So we went anyway. We always want to be careful we don't want to come across as cowboys. We don't want to be kidnapped. We don't want to be blown up or tortured. But we also don't want to live exclusively by the principles of risk management. We don't want to be controlled by fear. And I love that last line. We don't want to be controlled exclusively by the principles of risk management. Anybody that's in a large company knows about risk management. It's a whole department of people who think about the worst things that could possibly happen and try to prevent anyone from doing anything that might get them hurt. But I love how this ties in with Jesus' metaphors. You are sheep among wolves. It is dangerous, but be smart, be shrewd as serpents, but be innocent as doves. There's this unique posture that we have in the church of being out in the midst of the world, thinking, using our minds, but taking risks for the sake of the gospel. So this is who we are as disciples. So the second question is, what will happen to us as we go out into the world? 
Look at verse 17. Beware of them because they will hand you over to local courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. Jump down to verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. So there's this... um, there's this concept throughout the Bible that there are three offices that, that God gives to people to lead them. The first office is the prophet. The prophet speaks the words of God. The second office is the priest. The priest kind of mediates the covenant between God and man. And then the king, the king is authorized to lead God's people in the kingdom. And as you look at Jesus, Jesus fills all of these roles. He is a prophet, he is a priest, and he is a king. And this passage, Jesus kind of steps into this prophetic role because what he does is he, he takes a look at the present situation. He's sending his 12 guys out on this short mission trip, but he talks about it seeing the future. Because there's no, we don't have any evidence that the disciples went out on this short trip and had to stand before governors or that their families you know, betrayed them or their children rose up against them. This doesn't happen here, but it's going to happen to God's people in the future. So Jesus is kind of looking ahead to what is gonna happen in the future. And he says, beware, be ready. This is, this is going to happen to you. And he doesn't, he doesn't apologize for it, he doesn't, he doesn't say avoid it. He just says, this is the life that is coming. This is the expectation that we should have. Legal challenges will be brought against you because of the gospel. Governments will persecute you because of the gospel. And, and we see this um, last month. Shaowang uh, Church in China, which has a thousand people in it, was raided by the government and shut down because they wouldn't let the Chinese government have authority over their practices. They said, no, we, we don't submit to the Chinese government, we submit to King Jesus. And their church was destroyed. Um, another story, last couple of weeks ago, a man named Karamjit in India new Christian, excited about his faith, was arrested and thrown in jail. Now, he wasn't a pastor. He's not a missionary. He's just a guy who loves Jesus, and he was talking about it too much. And he was arrested for it. In the first half of 2018, last year, 6,000 Christians were killed in Nigeria, and 50,000 lost their homes. And then just a couple weeks ago, over 250 people in Sri Lanka were killed because they went to church on Easter. So this, this thing that Jesus says is coming, this is a reality in much of the world. People all over this globe who simply just follow Jesus are arrested, are even killed for their faith. It, it, it's pretty funny sometimes when we talk about like persecution in, in our country you know, I, I think about like Starbucks didn't put Jesus on their cup last Christmas. And, oh man, we're being persecuted. Like, no, we're not. <laughs> Some, I just read this art. I was looking for examples of persecution in America. And, and, I'm, and I, I don't want to, 
I don't want to mock this too much because I'm sure there are, but I found this, this story and the headline is, persecution is coming to America. And it was paragraph after paragraph after paragraph after paragraph of all the stuff I just talked about, India and China and Pakistan and all of these Christians that are being um, arrested and tortured and killed. And at the very end, the last paragraph said like, uh, and this is, it's coming to America too. Some students get called names in class. <laughs> and I just thought, really? That's the best we can do, guys? I mean, it's a bummer to get called names in class. I understand that. But it's just not the same. And that, that bothers me. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I, I wonder, like, why? Jesus is pretty, pretty sure that this is what life is going to look like for people who follow Jesus. And that's not what it looks like for me. I'm guessing it's probably not what it looks like for most of you. And, and I don't think that means we're not saved or that, you know, we're not obedient to the gospel, but I think that should be something that we give some thought. What about our lives? What about the worlds that we've built up around us have prevented this from becoming a reality? And most of that is a good thing. I mean, we live, live in a country with, with values that are largely based on the freedom of, of, that the Bible brings us, and, and that's a positive thing, but I think it should make us uncomfortable when Jesus says, this is what, this is what my people are going to look like, and, and you go like, well, I don't look like that at all. It's definitely something to pray about. Jesus says, we will suffer opposition because of the name of Jesus. That's in verse 22. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. And it's important that we understand that this is because of Jesus' name. If people don't like you because you're a jerk, that is not persecution in the name of Jesus. If you get online and you, I saw a Babylon Bee article this week and it was all about like, uh, Christian can't figure out if it's persecution for Jesus or it's just because he's a jerk online. <laughs> and if, if that's what it is, if like you're just, if you're railing against people and you're hard to be around and nobody likes you just because you're abrasive, then that's probably not because you're a Christian. It's probably just because you're not a very nice person. See, suffering in Jesus' name should be incongruous with our actions. If we look at if we look at the picture of what it means to be a disciple, like what is the disciple doing? Announcing the good news. Hey, do you guys need some good news? You know what? Jesus is Lord and he loves you and he died on the cross to save you from your sins. Isn't that awesome? No, we're going to kill you. Like that's super weird. Like there should be this really strange disconnect between the message that we bring and the reaction if it's persecution. All of these examples that I gave of, of persecution around the world, these are people that are just being lights in their communities and trying to love people and do good. And the response is negative. There should be a real question mark there. I've told this story a couple times, but during the second and third centuries in Rome, the, uh, the people of God were told that they had to swear allegiance to the emperor. And uh, they, didn't have to, 
They didn't have to believe the emperor was God, but once a year they had to go into the temple of the emperor and burn incense on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. And then they get a little paper sign that said that they'd done it, kind of like doing your taxes, and they were good for another year. And the Christians, they wouldn't do it because they said, Jesus is Lord. And the Romans would say things like, no, it's, we don't care what God you worship. This is just a political thing. We just need your allegiance to the state. Just come in, do the thing, sign the paper. We don't even care. And the Christians would say, well, we do. We are not going to say that. We're not going to do that because we, our allegiance is to Christ. And the Romans didn't really know what to do with this because these people weren't rebellious. They weren't insurrectionists. They weren't causing problems, but they weren't following the rules. And they ended up oftentimes putting the Christians to death kind of bewildered that these people wouldn't sign this paper. There should be something about the way we are treated that that doesn't make sense. If we're fighting and hurting and abusing people and we get punished for that, that's a different thing than if we're just trying to be lights in the world and the world responds with hatred. So number three, how do we respond this. Verse 19. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you are to speak, for you will be given what to say at that hour, because it isn't you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father is speaking through you. And then in verse 22, you'll be hated by everyone for my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to another. For truly I tell you, you will not have gone through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So there's three things he says that we should do in response to persecution. And the first thing is speak. Persecution is an opportunity to be placed in an environment that we would otherwise not have access to. Every, you see this in the life of Paul. Every time he gets arrested, every time he gets brought before a religious tribunal, it's like, yes, I get to talk to some people in power that I would not have otherwise been able to talk to. And Jesus says, don't worry about what you're gonna say. Don't plan it out. Don't figure out in advance how you're gonna talk to the governor or the king or your boss or whoever calls you in to give an account for your actions, because the spirit inside you, the Holy Spirit that we're given, will give us words to say. And notice Jesus isn't primarily concerned with how you're gonna escape from this situation. He's concerned about how you represent him in it. How will this opportunity to be in front of those people in power give you a chance to tell them about Jesus. And I feel like this is, this is almost a, a really, like, like we shouldn't even have to say this, but it, but it seems to come up. So like this is not an excuse to not prepare if you have a Bible study or a sermon or, or like if you're, if you're gonna teach. Like I, I, I can't even understand how people use this verse to be like, I'm just gonna get up and wing it because the spirit will be there. That's not what this says. It's not about that. So, so if, you're, if you're teaching a Bible study or, or, or giving a presentation or a sermon or something, you need to study because this verse is not about that. <laughs> so speak. The second thing he says is endure. 
The one who endures to the end will be saved. Don't give up. You will want to give up. I want to give up. There are, there are moments, there are days when I just think, you know, a cabin in the woods with no people would be really great. Our emotions are fickle, right? There, there, are, there are moments of just high highs following Jesus, and then there are moments of just desperate lows. Like, do I even believe this anymore? Is this even real? Has God actually done anything in my life? I don't know if any of you ever feel that way. I do. But Jesus says, don't give up. Keep on going. And then the third thing he says, he says, speak, endure. And then he says, flee. When they persecute you in one town, flee to another. Jesus specifically gives us permission to run away. I think that's funny because that just seems like, I don't know, that seems like, a, 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 that's not how it works in the movies, right? You don't run away. But if you go back to his serpent and dove metaphor, like be smart, be innocent. If, if there's resistance, maybe the right answer is to move on. Jesus doesn't really, um, he's not super concerned about it when people reject him. I mean, in the, in the big picture he is, but like he doesn't bother people to death. Like, do, do you want to follow me? Oh, you don't? Are you sure? Because it's really great. Are you sure? Come on, and I'm, I'll come back tomorrow. I'll ask you again. He's like, if you don't, you don't. And then we move on. And this is what he says to his disciples. If, if they don't like it in this town, just leave. Go to another town. You've done your job. You've proclaimed the gospel. And if they don't accept it, it's not up to you anymore. And the funny thing is, is the act of fleeing, the act of moving on is one of those things that often causes the gospel to spread. We see this in the book of Acts where there's persecution in Jerusalem and it causes all the Christians to run away out into the land of Judea and Samaria and the gospel spreads. So Jesus says this, this weird thing in... Um, Verse 23, he says, For truly I tell you, you will not have gone through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And this is kind of a weird verse because we tend to think that when Jesus says, the son of, when the Son of Man comes, that he's talking about his return to earth uh, the second time, what we call the second coming. And there are times that that seems to be what he's talking about. But if we, if we think about the metaphor that he uses, and we've talked about this idea of the son of man a lot, um, it comes from Daniel 7. And Daniel sees a vision of the ancient of days, God the Father on the throne. And there's all of these uh, nations that are represented as beasts on the earth and they're terrible beasts and they're hurting people. And the beasts are destroyed. And then Daniel says that one like the son of man comes on the clouds up to the Ancient of Days and sits down at a throne that's next to God the Father's. And so it, it makes more sense, I think, in this passage that Jesus is thinking about his ascension because this is exactly what happens. He, he 
goes to the cross. He dies in our place for our sins. He's risen from the dead. He spends about 40 days with his disciples, and then he ascends back to the Father. And he says he's going to sit down at the right hand of the Father. And it's the exact same picture as the Son of Man metaphor, that he's coming up on the clouds and he's, being, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And so when Jesus says, you will not have gone through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes, he's saying, don't worry, this is a short mission. I'm not expecting you to get the whole thing done right now. We've got other things to do. The mission will grow in the future. I love again that, that Jesus is, he's both concerned about the urgency of the task. He said in the last chapter, pray to the Lord of the harvest because the, the harvest is um, is ready, but the workers are few, right? Like go out there and get it. It's important to do it now. But he also kind of just gives it to the Father, right? This is God's work. You're gonna go out, you're gonna do your thing. You're gonna be where you are. You're going to share your faith. And God is gonna do the work. We need to be about his business, but, but I think we tend to stress out that we gotta get all of this done. No, just get today done. Just get this part done. Go out. We, I don't know how long these guys went out for this first trip, but maybe it was a couple weeks. Go out, do that, come back. We'll debrief it. And we'll go out again. We'll share with some other people. We, in one sense, we've got time. So there's an urgency, but there's also a just rest in the sovereignty of God. The last thing, what, what will become as we follow Jesus, as we are his disciples? Verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. It is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? And Jesus says, if we live out the calling that we've been called to by Jesus, we will become like Jesus. In the immediate context, he's talking about like, they're going to persecute you because they're going to persecute me. Because they don't accept me, they're not going to accept you. But then I think even in the larger context, as we step out, as we share who we are with people that need to know Christ, as we exercise faith and patience and boldness and love, over time, as we do these things, we become more like Christ. Turn, if you, if you can, to the book of Romans, chapter 8. In Romans, chapter 8, Paul is writing to the Roman church, and in verse 28... He says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. 
For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. See, that's, that's where we're going. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're one of Christ's ones, that's what Christian means, you are being made like Jesus. And we aren't made like Jesus in a vacuum. We don't just you know, sit at home and slowly turn into a more Christ-like person. In God's sovereign plan, he's decided the way we're gonna be made like Jesus is by going out and actually acting like Jesus and even suffering like Jesus. And it's, it's a common metaphor, but it's a good one. It's it, spiritual muscles are a lot like physical muscles, whether we're talking about faith or love or patience or self-control, you exercise those things and they get stronger. To be, to be sitting alone and, and praying for self-control is a good thing, but don't expect more self-control if you don't actually go out there into a situation where you need self-control. God will give you that in the situation that you need it and it will grow as you use it. And so as we go out as sheep among wolves, shrewd and innocent, as we prepare to be treated wrongly for the name of Jesus, God's gonna use those very circumstances to make us more like Jesus. Beelzebul is a uh, first century Jewish name for Satan. they call the head of the house, if they call Jesus Satan, how much more the members of his house. And this is, this is just another example of that incongruity, right? Like, what did Jesus do? Well, he went around telling people that God loves them, and he went around healing people and casting out demons. He's so satanic, right? Like, it's such a weird thing to say about Jesus. But that's what his enemies would say, He's Beelzebul. He's, he's being given power by demons to do good and spread the gospel. And that's such a weird thing. So as we, as we close this morning, I think the, the question for me is, if, if I'm a Christian, if I'm a follower of Christ, what, what's my goal in that? Like a lot of us, we come to Christ, we come to trust in Jesus for a lot of decisions or for a lot of reasons. Maybe, maybe we have a fear of death and judgment. Um, maybe we're, we're in some kind of pain. Maybe we are hoping that Jesus is gonna solve some problems. Maybe we go to some gathering and have a really, a really powerful emotional experience of the love of God during the electric guitar solo. Um, and none of those things are bad things. But at some point, if, if our foundation for our relationship with Christ is based on one of those things, the gospel's gonna let us down. Because if, if, our, if our faith in Christ comes from that emotional crescendo that we had that one time, that's gonna fade away. And if that's all we have, we're gonna be disappointed. If, if we if we come to Christ because he's gonna solve our problems and he decides not to solve all of our problems, maybe, maybe he decides to give us more problems to make us more like him, we're gonna be disappointed. If we think becoming a Christian is gonna remove our pain, 
well, I know a lot of beautiful followers of Christ that are, have so much pain in this life. See, the call of the gospel, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. Put my yoke upon you. He's saying, become like me. This is the goal of the Christian life. Another, um, another place that this stands out to me is in Philippians um, chapter three. Turn there if you want. Paul is speaking in, in Philippians three. He says in verse 10, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. And so for Paul, this idea that he just wants more and more to be like Jesus, to know Jesus, this is his goal. And so for us, like, is that our goal? Is that the kind of people that we want to be? Do we want to look back on our life and say, you know, things didn't always go well. Sometimes money was tight. Sometimes there was physical pain. Sometimes there was relational problems. But I'm more like Jesus today than I was back then. And that is my hope. Because if, if we're not, if that's not why we are in this, we're going to be disappointed. Because that's the, that's the promise that Jesus makes to us, that, that he will conform us to his image, that he will make us like him, that he will fill us with his spirit and that we will grow in the fruits of that. And if that isn't a priority, then for me, then it should be. So we're gonna take communion and, and the communion meal is many things, but one of those things is that it is an example of this unity with Christ. He says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed. Take, eat, take, drink, take this into you. He says near that, that section in, in John, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And he says, abide in me. And, and, and one of the things we remember when we take the bread and the cup is that he is the source of our life. Like it is, it is Jesus that is propelling us forward. It is Jesus that gives those Christians in India and Sri Lanka and Pakistan and China the, the courage and the boldness and the grace to love their enemies in the midst of the terrible circumstances that they're in. And should we suffer similar circumstances, it gives us the same grace and boldness to do the same things. And so I would just invite you as we, as we sing together, as we remind one another of who Christ is and what he's done for us to, to take the communion and, and just reflect on this idea of Am I in this to be more like Jesus? Or do I have other motives? That's a hard question. 
And it's one that I think we should ask pretty regularly because my, my motives and my, my desires, they shift all the time. Sometimes I think I want to be more like Jesus. Sometimes I think I want to be rich. I probably can't have both. Sometimes I think I want to be more like Jesus. Sometimes I just want to be left alone, right? And so ask that question of yourself. Why, why do I pursue living my life as a follower of Christ? Why am I in this? Heavenly Father, we are, we are well aware that we are people that are, um, we're volatile in our emotions, in our desires. We, we don't always see clearly. God, you, you paint a picture in, in Matthew that, that is not fun. God, we, I know I, I've read it so many times and heard it taught that, that you just, I just kind of, my eyes glaze over with yada, 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 persecution. But to actually, if that's the reality of my life, that's a scary, scary thought. If that's, if that's the kind of thing I am walking my family into by following you, that's a scary thought. God, we thank you for the grace you've given us in this country, in this city, the freedoms that we have. But God, help us to not take that for granted. Remind us that that could change at a moment's notice. The powers of darkness are still trying to fight in this world, even though they're defeated. And there's no guarantee that our lives will be as carefree as they are forever. God, we don't, we don't like the preemptive love coalition. We don't want to be kidnapped. We don't want to be tortured. But we also want to be people who have lives that matter for the kingdom. We also want to walk in ways to where we can be made more like Jesus. God, whatever that looks like for each one of us individually, I just pray that you would open our eyes to those opportunities. And if they're scary things, if they're things we're unsure of, give us boldness and courage and, and a supernatural love for people. And your love is what's gonna change the world. And we wanna be ambassadors of that. Help us search our hearts this morning and, and make sure that our motives are in line with the reality of the good news. Help us to be people that want to be more like Jesus, more than anything. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.